If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. We are just over a week away from the second Republican presidential debate, and I will be co-moderating it with my colleague Stuart Varney and Univision's Ilya Calderon. I'm excited about it. I got a lot of work to do. I need some more minutes in the day. If anybody has minutes to sell, I am a buyer. And although most conversations about 2024 center around the presidential election today, I also want to take a look at another important aspect of this cycle, and that is the balance of power in the United States Senate. Republicans have a good opportunity if they don't blow it. Isn't that always the case? Well, with key incumbent Democrats finding themselves in vulnerable positions, Republicans are eyeing opportunities to take back control of the chamber. And joining me today to examine the Senate map is my friend Stephen Law. We'll talk about everything, but you'll want to hear what his take on how he sees the Senate races shaping up. Stephen is the president and CEO of One Nation, as well as American Crossroads. That's a super PAC that raises funds to support Republican candidates. Stephen is also the president of the Senate Leadership Fund, which is aiming to build a Republican Senate majority. He had worked with me, actually, in the Bush administration. He was the deputy secretary at the U.S. Department of Labor and then previously was the chief of staff to Senator Mitch McConnell. And he's a great friend. I'm excited for you to get to know him a little bit better. Okay, Steve, it's so good to have you on the podcast The podcast is gaining in popularity already, and I love hearing, especially from the moms out there who are loving the podcast because it gives everybody a little bit of a taste of what's happening, but not too in the weeds. Yes. So I like listening to it as well. You've got some great uh, hosts on there, and I'm honored to be one of them. And uh, hopefully we can break down a few of the mysterious things that go on in politics and uh, bring some clarity. Okay, so a quick hit, if we just could, on... We're about we're nine days away today from the second Republican primary debate. And just a comment about kind of how static that race has been with Trump having a commanding, a seemingly enduring lead and the rest sort of just down there in like the teens and even, you know, two or three percent. There's not been a lot of movement there. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about the fact that Donald Trump really is the incumbent running for re-election. You know, obviously he he lost in 2020, but he's come back again to run. But he is in that position of being effectively the incumbent. And it's hard to knock somebody off of that perch. And to do it, you really have to present yourself as a strikingly different alternative that is somehow better. 
And I think that's what all the candidates have struggled to do. Certainly, uh, Governor DeSantis has struggled in that. And if you look at uh, Ramsawamy, he's kind of presenting himself as just a, a new version of Trump 2.0. And uh, so you don't see a lot of differentiation from candidates who ha are able to raise the money and project themselves with enough heft that they're coming across yet. And then you have some of the other candidates who might call you might call more traditional conservatives and they can't seem to get a foothold. And is that because do you think that the party makeup has changed so much or that the mood of the party has changed so much that that is more of a minority viewpoint in the party now? I, th I think that uh, I think that's right. Uh, I read Tim Alberta's book, uh, American Carnage, which was a, a fascinating uh, look at how the party changed from the the beginnings of the Tea Party uh, through the uh, the rise of the Freedom Caucus in the House and then uh, to Donald Trump's presidency and and the party has changed somewhat and in some ways it's changed for the good. We have a lot more working class voters, a lot more people who are not college graduates who have a more intuitive understanding and appreciation for politics, and they bring a, a somewhat different uh, point of view and, and a different. Uh, set of uh, values to uh, the party. And they also kind of view a lot of politics as smoke and mirrors. And they're attracted to Trump because he's a unique person. He he seems to be utterly himself. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting is for as static as the GOP race has seemed, the drama, I think, is happening on the Democratic side, where you have people yes. who for many months have sort of whispered, Joe Biden's too old to run, right? And then it got to be a little bit louder. And now you have full-on Democrat-on-Democratic conversations going on in open <laughs> on this question of, is Biden too old to run? Now, if you ask voters, I've never seen anything like it in recent years where 80% of people in America agree on one thing, that Biden is too old to run. And apparently, according to the New York Times, the Democratic leadership thinks that the voters are wrong. But Stephen, the voters are usually never wrong. They, they end up not being wrong because they're the ones who get to vote. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the leadership in Washington can opine all they want, but uh, it's the voters who decide. And I, th I think the Democrats have a very, very serious problem here. I um, looked at a very interesting poll in the Wall Street Journal that uh, came out about three or four weeks ago. And it was interesting because it, it very closely compared Trump and Biden and delved pretty deeply into Biden's uh, electoral support. And you know, one of the things they found, a lot of people said, who cares about it? But uh, both Trump and Biden basically have the same image. Uh, they're, they're, they're both uh, not very well liked, 39% uh, favorable, 58% unfavorable. But the percentage of very favorable that, tr that Biden gets is 17%. Trump gets 27%. Wow. To have just 17 percent of voters say they have a very favorable view of you means you have virtually no base. Mm. And if you're an incumbent president running for reelection and you have virtually no base, you're an endangered species. I mean, you're Jimmy Carter. And I, I think that Democrats themselves are starting to wake up to it. You saw Senator John Tester, who is always very cautious in what he said. What he he a senator He's from Montana who's up for reelection. Yeah, he's he's up for re-election in a state that went overwhelmingly for Trump in the last election. He, he's now running for re-election. He's got to somehow find enough ticket splitters to survive what could be a complete washout in the presidential race. And he said publicly he's quite concerned 
uh, about President Biden's approval numbers. I mean, that that is the beginnings of a very serious discussion about what's going to happen at the yeah. top of the ticket. So you know, it'll be to see where it goes. Last week, it was Tuesday night. I was putting things away. And of course, I have to check my phone and I'm checking X, also no, a, a, formerly known as Twitter. And I see a tweet from Henry Olson, who's a Republican historian and a commentator and a columnist for The Washington Post. And he has reposted a column by David Ignatius, who is a longtime political commentator, mostly foreign policy columnist, but definitely involved in the sort of Democratic Washington, D.C. establishment parlor game. And this is where I said, oh, gosh, the dam has broken because David Ignatius out loud with the headline that said Biden is too old to run. And in the piece, he said, and Kamala Harris can't win. And I wonder, Stephen, just practically, what is the timeline if the Democrats were to make a change? I mean, don't they have to do that soon? I would think so. I mean, you, you can't push it all the way to a brokered convention and expect to get anything other than chaos. Uh, but it's the sort of thing that I would imagine would have to be done with absolutely expert, flawless choreography, because, as you note, you know, not only do you have the president to deal with, who's an incumbent president of your own party, uh, but you've got uh, a vice president who is e even more unpopular, even more widely viewed as completely incompetent, uh, but who's not going to just simply go quietly if she's asked to do so. And so finding an alternative, uh, trying to have, a, in particular, an organized succession plan, which becomes extremely difficult. I, I imagine they might be able to do it. I've seen them, the Democrats do this sort of thing before with incredible uh, alacrity, but uh, I don't know how they would it's do it. It's getting late early, right? Is that, yeah, <laughs> that's the old saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and then another Washington Post reporter, columnist, Colbert King, he put out a message after the Ignatius one. This is what, it's interesting. They're, they're having these conversations live in the papers and mm -hmm. colbert king says hey democrats don't forget that black women in particular are so important to your democratic votes and they like kamala harris so mm -hmm. don't you dare think about that and i thought well there and this is how you get to what we call in cricket a sticky wicket <laughs> it's, i'm just glad to see that we're Democrats have the same kinds of problems and challenges and headaches that uh, that we do. <laughs> yeah, they, indeed. They're, they're not shy of them. Do you think impeachment of Biden or the impeachment inquiry helps or hurts or doesn't matter? Uh, Me meaning helping thing, Biden. Yeah, I, I don't know that it helps or hurts Biden, especially uh, impeachments on both sides. And this goes all the way back to, to Bill Clinton. They're, they're immediately polarizing. Everybody goes to their tribes and there's very little movement. The, the only problem and, and the one risk for the impeaching party is that whenever Congress investigates somebody or something, it often works to the detriment of Congress because what people often see is witnesses getting hectored and people giving long speeches and it feeling very Washington flavored. So uh, I mean, these are the, the issues that are being presented in this case are important. I'm not saying they shouldn't be investigated, but there is a risk to the to the investigating party when this sort of thing happens. But everybody goes to their corners and then there's very little movement once it starts. All right. So that was our overview of what's going on in politics. In our next segment, we're going to delve into the issues. And Stephen is an expert. So looking forward to that. Before we go, though, to a break, I've got a candidate quotable. And here it is. Which presidential candidate is responsible for the following statement? 
Joe Biden hasn't been telling us the truth. Donald Trump didn't tell us the truth before that. And Barack Obama didn't tell us the truth before that. It's been a long time since we had a president who told us the truth. And I intend to be the one that does. We'll have that answer coming up. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Welcome back to Perino on Politics. Stephen, I want to talk about the United States Senate and your views on that. But before we get to that point, I feel like the issues that are on people's minds right now are on your mind and shaping all of this is really important. And you had already told us about your thoughts on how Biden is unpopular and how that matters. One of the reasons is because of the economy. You have a great majority of Americans saying this economy is not working for me and inflation is the reason. I know that you're a student of history as well. You've already mentioned Jimmy Carter. Is Biden in that territory on the economy? Uh, well, I, I don't know that the economy is yet perceived to be in as bad a shape as it was in the late 70s, but we're certainly moving into that territory. And if you look at interest rates and inflation rates, uh, those are comparable to what we saw back then. Uh, the one part of it that has yet to uh, be in that same kind of territory as it was in the late 70s is, is jobs. The job market has sort of stayed somewhat steady and, and you see the Biden White House putting a lot of stock into that. But, but as you note, uh, concerns about inflation, about higher prices, gas prices, housing prices, rent, everything is going up and is, is excruciatingly high for people who are in the middle class or working class voters. And uh, and they blame this current administration. They understand uh, that the policies and the spending that uh, President Biden and Democrats pursued over the, the, the first few years of the, of the Biden presidency are responsible for this and, and they're gonna hold them accountable. So I, I think this is a very, very serious issue and uh, and Biden's quite vulnerable. Are you surprised that they seem to have very little flexibility to pivot on their messaging because they spent three months trying to tell Americans how great Bidenomics was. The polls are in. And again, a great majority of people say, no, not for me. And yet the White House just keeps saying the same message over and over as if they can get people to feel differently just by saying it. Well, it goes back to you know what happened in the Obama administration, where you know, President Obama at one point said, well, clearly, we just didn't explain it to, to you well mm -hmm. enough. We or you were too dumb to pick right. up on what we're putting down. I, I, it, it never really works that way. And in just the last few days, I've, I've heard the uh, Biden White House switch away from talking about Bidenomics, which I think has kind of been a flop, to focusing on Maganomics. You know, this mm -hmm. is what will happen if the Republicans are in charge or here are the things that they would do uh, to hurt the economy. I, I don't know that that works uh, any better. The, the only thing that I would say, though, that is of some concern to me is that for Republicans to win on the economy, we're going to need to talk about the economy. Uh, I, I do give the Biden White House, uh, you know, some points for at least effort, uh, even though I think they've been unsuccessful at it. They're trying to engage on the issue. It's just that people don't believe it. But at the end of the day, for our Republican presidential nominee and for our, our Republican candidates down the ticket to capitalize on how people feel about the economy, we're going to have to really talk about it and 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 not put all of our stock into issues that may play very, very well with our base, but don't resonate with that larger segment of the electorate that we're going to need to win over next fall. And then so how does a UAW strike fit into this in your mind? I, I think this is a huge issue to, to me. 
it feels like it's the ultimate canary in the coal mine. Because if you take a look at what this is really about, fundamentally, it's about how the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which Joe Biden signed, which Joe Manchin wrote, and which every Democrat in the House and Senate voted for, how that is going to work to shift jobs away from places like the Midwest and unionized auto worker jobs in places like Michigan and shift it elsewhere, elsewhere across the country and out of the country to places like China, which are dominating uh, many of the parts production aspects of, of, uh, of electric vehicles. Uh, the, the auto workers have figured it out and they're angry about it. They do not go along with the climate change ideology of this administration, and they're petrified of losing their jobs and their right to be petrified because that's where things are headed. On abortion, this came up over the weekend as President Trump did an interview with Kristen Welker, who's the new host of Meet the Press, and we congratulate her on that. There's a lot of commentary after this, and part of me feels like whatever Trump says, it doesn't matter because the people that love him love him, and it's not going to really matter. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. And on this issue, I feel like the Democrats have proven that at the ballot box, they can win when abortion is on the ballot, even in red places. And I wonder what you think about that as we shift to talking about the Senate, how you think abortion plays into this as an issue. Well, a couple of things on that. I mean, I, I do think Democrats used is, uh, abortion as an issue to their advantage in the last election in, in, two, in two important ways. First of all, they had a deeply demoralized base uh, heading into the midterms, and abortion became a rallying cry that, that helped them get disaffected voters, especially younger voters, to the polls. Uh, and second, they raised hundreds of millions of dollars for their candidates on that issue alone. My view is. Democrats will run that play again. First of all, it worked for them. Second of all, what do they have to run on? Support for Joe Biden, inflation, gas prices, <laughs> controlling the border. I mean, really, they have nothing. So this is what they're going to have to talk about. Uh, fortunately, what I think Republicans uh, have is an avenue to talk about this issue in a way that at least neutralizes it, if not wins the issue for us. And there was an interesting point in that uh, particular interview with President Trump, where the former president was, was said several times over that Democrats favor allowing abortion up until the moment of birth. And Kristen Welker several times interrupted and, and said that's not true. But he is actually right. Every single Democrat, but just a, but but just except for Joe Biden, has voted repeatedly. Every single Democrat in the Senate has voted repeatedly to allow abortion up until the moment of birth. That is their policy. No Democrat will contravene that point, except for maybe Joe Manchin. So, so the Democrats have a policy problem here where they're outside the mainstream. We have a communications problem in that we need to, basically, I thought President, uh, President Trump's messaging on this was, was not bad. It was basically, we need to be very clear that we support exceptions to bans, but we also allow for guidelines so that we're not conducting abortions up until the moment of birth. And there are other things that we ought to be doing as well uh, to support healthy families and promote uh, adoption and things like that. Those are things that Republicans can communicate that are within the, you know, the, basically the four corners of where most of the party is that also connect uh, with most voters, but we're gonna have to talk about it and be very explicit about where we stand. And that's what I saw the uh, former president do. What about, last question on this before we take a quick break and then focus solely on the Senate races. Um, what about those who say, yes, but there is an evangelical movement and a pro-life movement that has worked for 50 years. 
and, and they believe life begins at conception. And that if they don't feel like they have a candidate that is going to protect that issue, if that's the main issue that they vote on, that that could hurt either President Trump or the Republican Party. Do you buy into that? Well, it, it is certainly possible that people will be less enthusiastic if they feel that the that the party or our nominee is insufficiently devoted to that issue. You know, the Dobbs decision did two things simultaneously. First of all, it uh, and this was one of the things that the pro-life movement fought for. It it invalidated this notion that there is some kind of constitutional absolute right uh, on abortion. But it did a second thing, too, which was therefore it threw the issue back into the province of politics. And that means state legislative actions. It means uh, political action. It means persuading voters. And uh, this is something that that, you know, for those of us who support pro-life values, we're going to have to stand up to and be involved in because it's going to be a fight over time Mm -hmm. to win the hearts and minds of voters who are now freshly dealing with this issue after years and years of dealing with nothing but slogans on either side that never really amounted to actual action. All right. With that, before we take a quick break, here is the answer to your candidate quotable. Joe Biden hasn't been telling us the truth. Donald Trump didn't tell us the truth before that. And Barack Obama didn't tell us the truth before that. Um, It's been a long time since we had a president who told us the truth. And I intend to be the one that does. Yes, that's former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Don't go away. More Perino on politics up next. All right, Stephen, we are back with Perino on politics and we want to get into you are an expert on a lot of things. But the United States Senate, you really know, like the back of your hand, you used to work in the Senate. You've worked on Senate races. You've also worked on the strategy overall to try to get Republicans in the majority. What does the map look like in 2024 for the Senate? Well, fortunately for Republicans, it's one of the most favorable maps uh, we've seen in a long time. Um, Many people don't know that uh, the entire Senate isn't up every two years. It's only a third, a third, a third, uh, because, you you know, you have a total membership and and the terms are staggered. So we've got roughly 33 seats up. uh, But what matters most is where those seats are located. And in the 2024 elections, there are three states that are strongly Republican. They voted for Donald Trump overwhelmingly in 2016 and 2022, and they're represented by Democratic senators. And those are West Virginia, represented by Joe Manchin. We've talked about him. Montana, represented by John Tester. We mentioned him. And then Ohio, which is represented by Sherrod Brown. So these are three states that are very Republican. They're represented by Democrats. And increasingly in politics, political geography is the most powerful determinant of how an election will go. Now, the reason these three guys have stuck around and they've been serving in their states for several terms is they're talented, they're aggressive, they're hardworking, and they've built a bond with the state. That doesn't mean that they're invincible, but we're gonna need good candidates to make sure we are competitive. What do you think of Steve Daines as a leader of the National Republican Senatorial Committee and his approach and how it might've differed from the past? Well, I love Senator Steve Daines. Uh, I liked him uh, ever since I first met him when he was running for the first time for the Senate seat uh, in Montana. Uh, he's incredibly sharp. He's strategic. Uh, he's he's very likable and affable, but underneath that is a, is a steely determination and a, and a real practicality. And uh, you know, he clearly understood the lesson of 2022, which is that candidate quality matters. You may remember it was just a year ago when 
Mitch McConnell said that candidate equality matters, and he was denounced by some as a heretic, and then people finally realized he was a prophet in the wilderness, as many substandard candidates went on to defeat. But um, Senator Nains uh, has been working very hard to recruit good candidates, to try to manage primary fields, to keep spoiler candidates out of races, and generally promote people uh, who can win these races. And again, even with Ohio and Montana, West Virginia being pretty Republican states, if we don't have high quality candidates who can raise the money, unite the party, appeal to voters on the other side, we, we won't knock out these Democrat incumbents. But with good candidates, we can. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And, and Senator Daines and his team, I couldn't say enough good about uh, what they're doing to make sure we have a good a good uh, team on the field. Was part of that strategy to have, well, well, for Daines, and I'm not saying he did it for any other reason, maybe thought this was the best his best possible candidate but he endorsed Trump early on and then has as i understand it utilized that friendship and commitment and loyalty to help prevent any i guess shenanigans in any of these senate races well so one of the other qualities that senator danes has is that he has the ability to both be very principled and get along with everybody uh, it's hard to do that in Washington, but uh, yeah, he, I, as as far as I know, he he is he's built a very good re- relationship of trust uh, with the former president, and he has a good relationship of trust with uh, the Senate Republican leader as well. And um, I think that's a testament to his mm-hmm. skills. Um, but but he's also the kind of person who p- people trust in terms of the quality of information he brings. And so I think when he goes to talk to the former president about candidates that he, he's paid attention to because what he's telling him is is reliable. Okay. There's two other states. Just quickly, if you could mention what you think is yeah. happening in Pennsylvania, where it looks like we might have some clarity there, maybe even this week, and Arizona. Uh, well, in Pennsylvania, you know, all our eyes are on uh, Dave McCormick, who uh, ran for the Senate last time, was just very narrowly defeated by a, a hair's breadth by uh, Dr. Oz, who had been endorsed by uh, Donald Trump. And, you know, most people feel like if uh, if if McCormick had been the nominee last time, we would have won that Senate race. And I, I happen to share that view. Instead, uh, he lost uh, the Republicans lost to John Fetterman. Yes. <laughs> that was a hard thing to swallow. Yeah. But um, yeah. And, and a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people feel that, you know, the governor's race went awry uh, again because of, of, of candidate issues. And uh, and so there's there's a lot of uh, appetite inside the state and and elsewhere to make sure we've got a winning candidate uh, who can take the fight to uh, the the current incumbent, Senator Bob Casey. Um, My perception of uh, Philadelphia, I mean, sorry, Pennsylvania, is that it it always moves another click or two in our direction from being a pretty reliably Democratic state, starting to move more and more in a Republican direction, especially as blue collar voters in the middle of the state, uh, a lot of them union members, uh, are starting to start to realize that they just start to realize that they share the values of our party. And 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 they a lot of them are fans of, of uh, former President Trump. Um, we think this could be a competitive race. Uh, the Casey name is very well known. Uh, there's been a Casey in uh, statewide office for 60 years. Wow. But Bob Casey doesn't have those kinds of numbers to show that. I mean, he I saw a poll where his, uh, there, there was a ballot position where he's at 42 percent. That's very low. Well, and Biden doesn't really do much for him in Pennsylvania right now. 
Well, that that is the huge problem that Democrats have here and elsewhere. You know, you look at where where Democrats are in these different states in terms of their approval numbers; they're not that great, and that's less a reflection of them than it is a reflection of the top of the ticket. And and this could be a very tough election for them simply because of the of the weakness of President Biden. Is that true in Arizona? Well, it's sort of hard to tell. We we don't have a clear choice of nominee yet. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that we've seen over the years is that the way Republicans win in Arizona is they they unite the the much more conservative element of the Republican Party with a more moderate wing as well as Republican leaning independents. And that was the John McCain formula in uh, a slightly different iteration. That's why how Senator John Kyle did it. Senator Doug Ducey, I mean, Governor Doug Ducey did that as well mm-hmm. when he ran twice for governor. Uh, that model broke uh, this last election, and you know we'll just sort of have to see if if they can put it together uh, in another cycle. Uh, as uh, you know, um, Senator Kirsten Cinema, who's the current uh, has been the Democratic incumbent, changed her registration to independent. Uh, she hasn't announced uh, for re-election yet. Some people think that she will, uh, but there's also a a fairly liberal Democrat House member named Ruben Gallego who's already in the race. So the question is. Do Democrats split their votes? Right. Do Republicans split their votes. <laughs> Who is able to put together that coalition? And it's also Who- interesting because Arizona will have an abortion-related referendum on the ballot for 2024. Yeah. And, and we've seen will, what happens you know, on college campuses. They get like a 98 percent turnout <laughs> on those campuses. <laughs> and so that is another thing I'm watching. I think it's very hard to call at this point because of all those complexities. Yeah. yeah. My last question for you is, what do you think about the decision by Senator Chuck Schumer to lower the dress code standards in the United States Senate, pretty much for one person who determines that the only way that they can live in their life is to wear a hoodie and shorts everywhere that they go. And that would be Senator John Betterman. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a terrible decision. Already, I feel like Democrats and, and frankly, many in the press have just excused John Fetterman and given him a pass when he's obviously got very significant issues and problems. Uh, you know, I, I think our institutions of government, particularly you know, higher level leadership, uh, ought to have standards, uh, ought to reflect some level of the dignity of the office. And I think it's unfortunate that uh, Schumer is going in that direction. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I think sometimes Schumer just kind of goes along with whatever conference wants, but uh, it is unfortunate in my view. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you have met the very dignified, gracious, and the most gentlemanly guest we have had yet on Perino on Politics, and that is Stephen Law. (laughs) You're very (laughs) kind. I've learned from you. All right, it's time for a pop quiz. You can choose from these categories. Presidential potpourri, campaign slogans, or debate debacles? I'll go with debate debacles. Okay. This was an oops, a big oops. Of the three government agencies Texas Governor Rick Perry wanted to cut, which one did he forget on the GOP debate stage in 2011? Department of Energy, Department of Education, or the Department of Music? (laughs) Uh, It had to have been energy. Yes, and the reason that's so interesting is because he ended up being the Secretary of Energy. (laughs) in the Trump administration indeed Stephen Law thank you for being with us today appreciate it so much talk to you soon okay thanks so much Dana great to be on listen ad free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad free on the Amazon Music app
The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.